Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Mother's Day again to all of you, and happy Mother's Day and good morning to you watching or listening online, wherever you might be. We welcome you as our extended family this morning. Well, as uh, Joe and Dave said, uh, we're now in the second week of, of the series called The Called. And so if you've got your Bible a little bit later, we're going to hang out in John chapter 15, one of the most profound uh, passages in the Gospels. So we'd love you to navigate or turn there, and we'll get there uh, in a few minutes together. Well, I think we need to say what a few weeks it has been. I think there's been a lot of major international and national events that have affected all of us sitting here or watching in one way or another. Uh, there was a wedding, I think, right, which some prince married a commoner and two billion people watched it. Now, I just need to ask, because I didn't last week. Be honest. Who got up at 4 a.m. to watch it? Raise your hand. Okay, wow. Okay, second. Did any of you wear a hat? Anyone? Oh, yeah. Now, did anyone put on their wedding dress? That's the real question I have. You did. A guy just put up his hand. Very concerning. Wow. That's a different sermon. Okay. Well, not only that, I don't know if you know, uh, a lot more happened than that amazing wedding that a lot of us watched. Um, a million people gathered, and millions of others actually watched uh, St. Peter's Square uh, to remember the last pope, John Paul II, as he got one step closer to becoming a saint in the Catholic sense. That, I think, the same weekend. Now, on a side note, I wish they'd just read their Bible and realize every Christian's a saint. I, we don't get stuff like that, but that's fine. That's a different conversation. But millions gathered to think and watch that. And then if that wasn't enough, then we as a nation of Canada gathered to vote in an election that supposedly nobody wanted, but it became one of the most significant elections in the last 50 years, and our country won't be the same for a while. Then later, I was watching TV late at night, and suddenly, around 11.20, the President of the United States got up and declared that the mastermind of 9-11, Osama bin Laden, had been found and been killed. And I immediately got on Twitter, Twitter and Facebook, television, the world was set on fire. I found out later that there was an average of 5,000 tweets per second in the United States alone as the president was speaking about Osama bin Laden. Now, what's really interesting, if you just stop for a moment, if you were part of any of these events from a distance or you participated, you had a reaction to every one of those if you knew about it. You not only had feelings, you had opinions. That's great, that's bad, that's terrible, that's boring, that's right, that's wrong. It's about time. I can't believe this has happened. It made me angry. It made me sad. It made me happy. I'm delighted. I'm devastated. I'm disconnected. Now, all of these emotions and all of these views were probably quickly given because they come from a pre-built worldview a set of beliefs that you hold about the world, about yourself, about justice or love or, or politics. Now, you may have spent a lot of time thinking those through or not at all, but all of us sitting here today and watching and listening, every one of us sees the world through a lens that is created by our beliefs. We access them, knowingly or not, all the time. Well, when it comes to the Christian faith, it's the same. What do we know is the question. What do we really believe? Because what we believe does affect how we live our lives. Is what you believe right or wrong? 
Is it God-honoring? Do you even really know? Are your views on God or church or truth or love or sex or justice or politics, are they founded on Scripture or you? Are they founded on Scripture or your family's view? Are, are, Are they founded on Scripture or your history or your experience? Now, many of us go at this point, John, listen, I really love God and I love Jesus, but other people can work out all that major stuff, and it doesn't really matter anyways. Really? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning it does matter. See, we show what we believe through our body language, by what we say, by what we think, and how we act towards ourself, God, and others. All of us here this morning have an understanding. The question is, is it the right understanding? Just think on these questions as I give them in rapid succession. Is Jesus really the only way to God? Like, really? Uh, Does it matter if I believe in the Trinity? Was Jesus the Son of God or a good religious teacher that we just sort of follow after? Is God a woman? Is is he a man or is he something else? Who's going to heaven? And by the way, is there a hell? And if there is a hell, what is it really like? Is it wrong to have premarital sex? And, And by the way, since I live in 2011, what is sex anyway? Is all sin the same? Is it okay to date or marry a non-Christian if I am a Christian? Is it wrong as a Christian to be in a gay relationship even if it's monogamous? Do I have to commit to one church or, 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 or many? And, and by the way, what's the difference between the Catholics and the Protestants anyway? I hang out with a lot of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus at work, and they're really, really good people. Actually, they're a lot nicer than some people at church. Are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? What if someone hasn't heard about Jesus? What happens to them? The Bible. You, you really think it's the word of God? Well, how does that work? What does it mean that God is jealous? I mean, I thought jealousy was wrong, so is he sinning? Is it true we really believe that God actually created things? <laughs> what about war? What about disease? And yet God's in control. What's up with that? Is there a Satan? And if so, who cares? John, I've become a follower of Jesus, so how does my life have to change? Is being a Christian about me feeling good about myself? Is it about my freedom or God's glory? Is it human-centered or God-centered? What about all the differences between Christian churches anyway? Does it matter or does it all pan out in the end? And where can we agree (coughs) to disagree? And where is there no turning back? And that word heresy comes up. Is God holy? We sang it today, but I thought he was loving. Or, Or is he both or neither? What's the role of the Old Testament in my life, or is there any role at all? I read Leviticus, and I'm totally confused. A lot of animals die. It's not PETA-centered at all. I don't know. What about spiritual gifts? I mean, are they just things I'm good at and I like? How do I pray? And here's one. What about unanswered prayer? Do you know your Bible well enough to even respond to five of those? Do you know God well? Do you know what God has to say to you personally? to your family, to our church about life, money, sex, relationships? Do you know what to defend on the primary issues? Do you know what a secondary issue is? See, it all matters because our faith is a relationship with a living person, and he has said a lot of things, including that he is capital T truth. He is understanding incarnate. So to know him is to know truth. And remember, we're called to love God with everything we are. It's interesting, Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus replied, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, what is it? Mind. So today we're going to get into part two 
of our discipleship series called The Called and hang out, about, hang out around the idea of understanding. Before I get into the depth of that, though, I want to review a little of last week, if you wouldn't mind. I started last week's message by saying that our mission statement, not our vision statement, but our mission statement is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I said, just stop and think about that for a moment. Fully devoted follower, fully devoted disciple, fully devoted Christian, someone who has given all to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of personal work and responsibility in this journey. After all, this is a relationship, and relationships need to be worked over over time. Yet, as Dave Adams and Joanna LaFleur a few weeks ago said, we have not done a good job here at C4 in helping us in this journey. It's like choose your own adventure. Good luck. Welcome to Crothers and Jesus. We hope you make it. Here's the options. Now we're working on a people path. Not only to help everyone new at C4 to know what we're about or where to go or how to connect, and by the way, what our expectations are, but more than that, the goal is to lay out how to become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus, and that's important to all of us, whether you're not a Christian or you've just become one or you've been walking for years. This series, The Called, is basically saying we are something already, but we are called to be something more also. And the goal over this four-week series is to look at the biblical mandate of discipleship and then produce the people path and all of us begin to move. The goal for all of us is to walk together in one direction, to see what we've accomplished much in our relationship with God and others, and to see where we all are lacking to really see clearly in the areas we think we're doing well in and to find out if we actually are doing very well. And all of this is being done so we as pastors can shepherd and care for ourselves and you better, to build up this church and equip all of us to become a more fully devoted follower. Now last week I started my message with three dimensions of discipleship. No matter who you are or your background, we all need to understand that discipleship is always about three things, and they overlap. Here's the first one. Relationship. The second one is understanding. The third one is freedom. So we've got relationship with God and others and ourselves, and then we move to understanding, and then we move to freedom. Another way of putting this is allegiance, truth, or power. These three things make up the Christian journey. As a friend of mine wrote, each of these encounters leads to a very specific, very important dimension of the Christian experience. Allegiance leads to relationship. Truth leads to understanding. And spiritual power leads to spiritual freedom. It's like a three-legged stool. If you are missing one leg or two, you will be imbalanced or you will fall over. I shared this last week. Let me share it again. We who grew up in good, conservative, evangelical churches were really good at the top one. We called people into relationship with God, and not only that, we were serious about truth or knowledge. We are capital T Truth Christians. We preach, I mean, we do it here, 23 weeks in the book of Romans. We're not fooling around here. But the problem is, rarely were we ever taught about spiritual power. That was reduced down, that doesn't happen anymore, or, or that's for those other churches. And what happens is we read the scriptures, we go through life, and the power that we see in Jesus and his early church, we go, but where is that for me? There's got to be more. And then in other churches, charismatically inclined churches, they're great on allegiance too. 
And they talk and practice spiritual power all over the place. But the greatest criticism they even say about themselves is they never take the time to get serious about truth, doctrine, and understanding. And so they go off the deep end and the other direction where experience is king. And then there's a third group of churches, what I would call compromised churches, where they never call someone into a personal relationship with Jesus. And since they never call someone into a living, dynamic relationship with Christ, their understanding and their experiences go off the deep end, and they produce churches that have crosses and have scriptures, but don't have Jesus anymore. And what we need to understand this morning and in this series and in for the long term is all of us, not only through spiritual giftings, but all of us have to be serious about allegiance, about truth and understanding, And we have to be serious about spiritual power because all three of them are found in Jesus. All three of them are found in the disciples. All three of them are found in the early church. And all three of them need to be found at C4 because that's the heart of our God as he builds relationship with all of us. And so one of the best passages that sort of brings us towards this, we we talked about it last week. It was Acts 2. Uh, We spent a lot of time talking about allegiance, focusing on meeting Jesus, baptism, a strong commitment to a local church through membership. This week, though, we're going to focus on knowledge. Who is God? What is he like? What is he up to? What are we being called to look like and to think? This becomes the foundation of how we live, how we see the world, who we represent and who we give away. Last week, we ended with Acts 2, like I referred to, and Peter gave the first grand Christian message, and it's interesting Acts 2.41 reads like this. Those that accepted his message were baptized. Allegiance, public declaration. And then the very next verse in Acts 2.42, we see that they devoted themselves to the local church. But right after those three relationship allegiance things got worked out, the very next thing you read is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Allegiance leads to truth. Relationship with God leads to an ever-growing understanding of who he is and what he expects. That's the pattern we all need to embrace. Now, one of the best passages on discipleship, which contains relationship, knowledge, and power, is what I referred to up front, John 15, so you can turn there now. Now, I could preach on ours, any pastor could, on the depth of this passage, but today, let me focus on the knowledge part for a bit. Many images, if you've read the book of John, have been used by and about Jesus to this point. Jesus has been called the Good Shepherd, Uh, The bread, uh, water, uh, light, which all were common in ancient Jewish tradition. But now, in John 15, he chooses to use another sacred common image in Judaism. The vine and the vineyard. Now, Israel, if you don't know this, this is really profound. In, In the Old Testament, Israel was considered the true vine, and God was their gardener. Psalm 88 summarizes this and uses the Exodus. This is what it says. You, God, brought a vine out of Egypt. There's the Exodus. You drove out the nations, so that's the promised land, and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Now you read that and go, okay, that's fine. But when you get to John chapter 15, 1, suddenly you realize the power, the controversy, almost the egotistical statement that Jesus makes. But he has the right to make it because he is God. But his critics don't get this. He turns around and says in John 15, 1, I am the what? True vine. And my father is the gardener. The guy that took everyone out of Egypt, just so you know, my daddy. Now at that moment, Jesus is saying, Israel has been replaced by 
me. I am the true vine, and God the Father, who is my Father, he's the true planter. Israel has been replaced by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, through his life and what he's about to do on the cross, is actually going to do what his people never did. Being faithful to obey God's word without ever compromising. His allegiance was clear. His understanding of truth perfect. His filling of the Holy Spirit all-consuming, used, never abused. One wrote, the new concept that is presented here is God's vineyard now only holds one vine. And Israel has to ask themselves, are they attached to him? No longer is Israel automatically seen as many vines growing in God's vineyard. Men and women are now branches only growing from one stock. Well, Jesus utters these controversial words because he's talking about discipleship here. And the very next thing he says shocks a lot of us. Verse 2, God cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it will become even more fruitful. Wow. You read that at face value and you go, well, what does this mean? Can I lose my salvation? Is this talking about me? No. This is not talking about losing salvation at all. This is what one person wrote. Follow along. First, he writes, a clear translation of the Greek word in John 15, to take away or cut off, actually is better rendered to take up or lift up. In fact, in the Bible and anywhere in Greek literature, this word never is translated cut off. Therefore, when some Bibles actually render it as take away or cut off, it's an unfortunate interpretation rather than a clear translation. Lift up, catch this, suggests an image of a vine dresser leaning over to lift up a branch. Why? Well, this author says, this became really clear when I was at a pastor's conference in the West Coast. A sun-brown man came to me, he wrote, and says, do you understand John 15, pastor? I said, well, not completely. Why? He says, well, I own a really large vineyard in Northern California, and I think I figured out what's going on. He said, I offered him uh, coffee in the spot, and we sat, and I learned from him. I learned from this grower, the hours spent walking in the vineyards, tending grapes, watching the fruit develop, waiting for the perfect day to begin harvest. New branches, he wrote, have a natural tendency to trail down and grow along the ground. But they don't bear fruit down there. Actually, when branches grow along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust. When it rains, then they get dusty and then muddy and then mildewed. And the branch becomes sick and useless. What do you do, he asked. You just cut them off and throw them away. He says, oh, no. No, that's the problem. A branch is too valuable for that. We actually go through our huge vineyard with a bucket of water looking just for those branches. And we lift them up and we wash them off. And he demonstrated this with his dark, calloused hands. Then we wrap them around the trellis or tie them up. And pretty soon... They're thriving. As he talked, the author says, I could picture Jesus in his own hand motions as he taught in that vineyard that night. He was showing how the Father makes sure his crop comes into full and sweet fruit. When the branches fall in the dirt, God doesn't throw them out, cut them away, or abandon them. He lifts them up, he cleans them off, and he helps them flourish again. Suddenly, the author said, I, I read John 15 in a brand new way. I'd never seen the power of this passage. So here's why the next verse now makes sense. Ready? You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You're already with me. I'm already picking you up. You've embraced me. My teaching, you've given me allegiance and lordship. There's understanding through my word. 
The entire revelation of God's will has been and is being made known to them by Jesus' not just life, his teaching. Then Jesus says these words, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Abide with me, walk with me. Notice here, scripturally, truth and knowledge are experiential and cognitive. Another said, discipleship is not just a matter of acknowledging who Jesus is rightly. It is having Jesus spiritually connected in our inner lives. This is a powerful, mystical union all Christians have. Jesus remains in us, listen, by his Holy Spirit. That's why when we were going through the book of Romans, we discovered one of the names of the Holy Spirit was what? The Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... They don't belong to Christ. But if Christ lives in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Let me say it this way. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to God. You're not saved. You're still condemned. You're not a child of God. You cannot call God Father, let alone Dad. Only through the Spirit is Jesus revealed. And only through Jesus can we see the Father fully. No Spirit No Jesus, no Jesus, no Father, no Father, no relationship, no relationship, no life. But when the Spirit of God is present and we allow Him to fill us, we get filled with the ethos of Jesus. And then He begins to reveal the Scriptures. He brings us into relationship and also into all truth. That's why Jesus said next in in, in verse 4, No branch, catch this, especially as you've grown up in church. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I am them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do, say it with me, nothing. It's about relationship. It's about power. It's about understanding. We are Jesus' limbs. We share his life. Again, see all three dimensions of our amazing faith. Without relationship, we can do nothing. Without knowledge, we will go astray. Without power, we cannot do the basic Christian life. So many of us have wasted years in our Christian life thinking that if we were just more moral, if we just did more things, then God would like us more and, and we would look more like Jesus. But we never stopped and said the only way we abide in Jesus is by what? His Spirit. Holy Spirit, come, help me do the things I don't even want to do, but God wants me to do. He says in verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, it's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now again, we suddenly go, well, are we back to verse 2? Is this saying I, I can lose my salvation? Is this saying I can walk away? No, don't insert your view into an old metaphor. The principle one wrote is simple. Jesus is the vine. He's the source of life. To fail to have him is to fail to have life. To refuse to remain in Jesus is to refuse the gift he is offering in the first place. You've got to read this in the context of John. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to his gift as living water or the bread of life. The image here is the same. It provides an analogy to talk about the essential life-giving work. Ready? Not to discuss the history of individual Christians or branches. That's not the purpose of this conversation. This is about invitation and saying yes to the invitation or no to the invitation. This isn't saying I'm already in and I'm out. Please read this in the context of all the images. Well, at the end of the first part, ready? 
Jesus concludes this metaphor with a strong call to remain in him by remaining in one place, his word. Our worship life, our prayer life, our worldview needs to be shaped by scripture. That is truth. That is biblical understanding. Verse 7, if you remain in me, Christian, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Now, this is saying if you really know God's word and what is promised and what is not promised, then you can pray with authority. Yet you must know his will and his word. Now, there's a lot of churches that misuse this passage. You know, they say, oh Lord, five houses. No, that's not the heart of this. When you know what God's will really is, then your prayer life explodes. Many of you said, why don't I ever see answered prayer? One of my questions back to you is, do you actually know your Bible? Because you can claim anything God truly gives you, but don't try claiming something he doesn't. He says, this is to my Father's glory, by the way, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the fathers love me, I love you. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and I remain in His love. Truth and knowledge about God and His work and His will must be connected into our allegiance. The kingdom of God is any place where the reign and rule of God is welcomed and accepted. And only in that place do we know the will of God through Scripture. It's a place where Jesus isn't just taken as Savior, he's taken as Lord. As one said, is discipleship a commitment to doctrinal beliefs concerning God and Jesus? Maybe it's a way of life, a way of love that sets us apart from the world. Or maybe it's an experience, a mystical encounter that transforms us. The author says, guess what, Crothers Creek? It's all three. Discipleship is a way of thinking, it's a way of living, and it's a supernatural experience that cannot be compared with anything else in the world. We are, as Christians, people of the book. We are Christians. We are people of capital T Truth. We are people molding our lives after the will of God. And so we must know God and His commands, and the only way to do that is in one primary place, no matter how you read it, this or this, it's the Bible. The Bible is the heartbeat of our movement. The more we know the Bible, the more we will hear, the more we will become, the more we will be like Jesus. J.I. Packer wrote this small description of the Bible this way. He says, Christianity is the worship and service of the true God, humanity's creator and redeemer. It is a faith that rests on revelation. Nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way if God had not acted first and made himself known. But God has acted, and the 66 books of the Bible, 39 before Jesus, 27 after, together are ready. The record, the interpretation, the expression, and the embodiment of all of his self-disclosure. God and godliness are the Bible's uniting themes from Genesis to Revelation. Just like Jesus, who was fully human and fully divine in mystery, so the same was Scripture. Though it was written by human authors and included their personality and their background and their worldview, God also was involved, and he divinely breathed this into life. This is not Shakespeare. It's not. It's not just another religious book. This is God's will. And what we read in this book 
which is the book above all books. This is God directly in the most primary way speaking to us and saying, this is who I am. This is what I expect. This is what I know. This is who you should be. This is what you should do. The Bible is at the heartbeat of our movement. So let's just take a moment as we think about the knowledge dimension of discipleship to hear what the Bible actually says about itself in a very brief way. My life verse is connected to this because I'm a teacher. My life verse is 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Do you notice this? Since you already have relationship, watch how you live and watch what you believe. Both of them matter. Both of them not only are connecting you to God, they actually are connected to how other people may respond for eternity. It says in Scripture that, that the Bible brings light to all of our situations. Psalm 119 and 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. It tells me how to live. Then verse 18, a great prayer. Open my eyes that I will see the wonderful things in your law. That's a great prayer for all of you to pray when you're reading through Leviticus, right? Oh God, open my eyes. I need to see something wonderful. I'm lost. But it's truthful because all scripture is helpful. It says in the Bible that the Bible is given to instruct us, to challenge us, to empower us to love God and others. The most famous verse on knowledge and doctrine is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. It's the same word used at creation where God spoke and things came to be. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching us. This is how to live. This is who I am. Rebuking us. Stop doing that. Correcting. You're going to the left or the right. Come on back. Training us in righteousness. This is how you live. So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible also is given to convict us as Christians. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates soul, spirit, joint marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If there is anything that's difficult to get in any situation, it's motive. Scripture has the ability to get right to the motive. It says also in Scripture that by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and by Scripture, it brings people to Jesus. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Or, or 1 Peter 1.23, for you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but the imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. It's also given to make us holy. Ch Jesus said in John 17.17, 17, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. You go, okay, John, well, what are you talking about? Well, here's where we need to go. Biblical understanding is capital T truth, which overcomes lies in all of our lives. It builds allegiance, it builds relationship, and it undergirds real spiritual power. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he came face to face with the God of this world, Lucifer, what did he do? Under the power of the Holy Spirit, he spoke the word of God and he had to go. Real spiritual power is undergirded by real relationship with a profound understanding of truth. Now, all of this comes back, as I end, to our people path. Beyond the first three steps we talked about, meeting Jesus or getting baptized or committing to a local church, there is going to be another group of steps going to be given to our community in large and small ways to grow all of us in our understanding. And let me just stop. 
Many of you who have been Christians for years, this is when you tune out and say, I've done this. I'm telling you, no, many of you have not. We need a community that's going to sit back honestly and say, do I really know how to read the Bible? Do I really know how to study it? What are the grand themes in the Bible? And, and not only how do I do that, how do I hear God personally speak devotionally through the Scriptures? Many of us know it, many of us don't. We're also going to challenge our church to grow in the next year plus in a strong area called theology, that we have a strong biblical and historical understanding of our faith. Does everyone have to be a theologian? No. But we need to know what we really believe. And let me just say, it's not just to know in our heads. It's to affect our lives. As one theologian wrote, theology is any endeavor on the part of a Christian to think through and set in order their beliefs with the intention of drawing close to God and for reflecting more of His character in their lives. That's what real theology is. We need to build a community that knows and loves Scripture. We need to build a community that is theologically aware. And we need to build a new sense of stewardship in this church where we all come under the lordship of Jesus and we admit that our money, all of it, our time and our talents, we don't own any of it. God has given it to us for a period and we need to ask ourselves, God, through your word and your spirit, what do you tell us to do with this? Now, the summer's coming, wouldn't you agree? It's nice out there, finally. And since the summer's coming, we won't be able to offer all of this stuff before you leave. But what I'd like to do is this. As Alan's about to come up and lead in two songs, I'm going to give you a few ways to respond, and I'm also going to give you some summer reading. So here's what we're going to do. First of all, if you listened online this week, you watched, or you listened, or you actually were here last week, and you didn't respond to the the offering we gave last week, that was that, yes, you've become a Christian, And you need to publicly say, what do I do next? Or, you know what, I spent all week and you know what, I do need to get baptized. I need to join the 25 people that said, yes, I'm already a Christian. I need to do this. Or say, you know what, this is my home church and I love this and I I believe in the vision. I need to take that step towards membership. Over the next two songs, again, we're going to have opportunity at these tables, those tables and up there to respond. If you're online, just email us at office at uh, crotherscreek.ca. But the other thing that's different this week beyond that is we're going to actually give you some summer reading. And if you're interested, there's little slips there where you can see one of four books that may help you as you prepare. And and let me just end with this, because I'm going to tell you what they are. Uh, One of the best books I've ever read, in a very simple way, on how to read the Bible is this, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And you can get this up at these desks. This tells you, a very simple way, how to read the Bible properly. What are different Bible translations? And tells you how to read different types of Scripture right. What's the difference between history and, and prophecy? How do I read Revelation different than John? If you want some serious summer reading to really get into this, phenomenal book. Here's the next one I'm going to recommend. It's called Concise Theology. Do you like that first word? Concise. Okay? This is one of the best, actually the best little book I've read on theology. It's a page and a half on every major Christian doctrine, and it gives you scripture. You could read it devotionally or otherwise. It's a great book. I think you can get a lot of these even on Amazon uh, in the sense for your iPad or iPhone. The third one is called Redeeming the Routines by Robert Banks. This is asking the question, and this is for a lot of you, how does theology affect my business? How does theology affect me being a dad or mom? How does theology, thinking right, actually lead me to live right? 
It's a great book. And the last one I just want to give you is called Discipleship Essentials. This is by Greg Ogden. And if you want to get really serious, this is a workbook that will take you the summer and we'll go through the whole, set, the whole part of our faith. And it's a workbook to really get you serious about growing in your faith. So this is the summer reading I want to recommend. So we not only move in allegiance, but we move in our understanding. And then when you come back next year and the people path is in place, we're going to start doing this in a more systematic way. Everyone with me? Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. Good. A few people. Uh, other people are like, I don't want to do homework. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But here's, here's what I want to say, please, as I end. Understanding is key because our world is looking for people who not only experience God, but think strongly about Him. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.